electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. The jobs report had something for everyone. The hawks, the doves, and especially the markets. So what is the next right move for the Fed, and what should yours be in these markets? We'll debate that. And is AI-powered tech overhyped or the place to be? Our market guest says there's a holy grail setup she's ready to pounce on. She tells us what it is and why you may want to get ready for it, too. And the conference that moves biotech stocks, ASCO kicking off. We have one of the biggest players. The CEO of Bristol-Myers Squibb is live with what's in their pipeline, how the company is leveraging AI, and we'll ask him about that cancer drug shortage. First, though, let's get you the details on today's rally. And it looks like we're here sitting right around session highs, up 668 points. That's a 2% gain for the uh, Dow here. The S&P, as you just heard, is up 1.5%, 62 points, 4,283. So we're just 17 away from 4,300 now. And the Nasdaq composite up 1%. The S&P is now up 11% on the year. The Dow has turned positive on the year. And the Nasdaq is at more than a one-year high. Now, Lululemon is rounding out a mixed week for retail with a big win today. A beat on the top and bottom lines. Sales up 24% from the previous year. China particularly strong in Q1. Company also raised their full-year guidance. Shares are up 12.5%. Cloud name MongoDB also up nicely today. A rally of 26% after they beat on the top and bottom line and raised full-year guidance. This stock is up about 70% in just a month. On the flip side, cybersecurity named Sentinel-1 down 37% after they slashed guidance and announced fresh layoffs. This has been a strong area cybersecurity has, but the stock giving up pretty much all of its year-to-date gains just today. Now to that much stronger-than-expected jobs report, at least if you look at the headline number, 339,000 jobs created in May, way past the 190K estimate, but... And this is important to a lot of market watchers and recession watchers. The unemployment rate also jumped by three-tenths in just a month. And that's got the market seeing a pause ahead. For more about this, let's bring in Michelle Girard. She's head of U.S. at NatWest Markets, along with our very own Steve Leesman. It's great to have you guys both here. Steve, I'll just start with you as we move throughout the day. Do you think that unemployment rate is becoming ever more um, important? You know, I'm taking a pass on that question, uh, Kelly. (laughs) I know that may not be fair, but here's the deal. There was a lot of big movements in some things and some detailed things inside there that make me a little bit suspect of that household number. When I look at the past several months and I use uh, the uh, what do they call the the payroll adjusted concept of the household survey, another way to compare them. They're kind of even over the past couple months. They just don't get there at the same speed. One is up one month, one's down another. Um, So it's not really that big a deal, I think. Um, It was all sort of self-employed, the unincorporated self-employed. There's a big drop in that. Really anomalous drop. So I'm taking a pass on the household survey. I wonder what Michelle thinks of that. I'd give her a chance to to, to chime in in just a second. But I will say I like the way you set it up. There's some good and bad stuff in there. Look, anytime you're going to put more Americans to work, it's a good thing. We maintain the participation participation rate. The wage growth was a little bit less. So all of that, I think, was pretty positive. And the market is taking it pretty well. They really took to heart. I I don't know if I want to call it the Jefferson pause or the Harker skip. What's the right way to put it? I don't know who deserves it. It's really something I think that ultimately came from Powell. But I think Jefferson is the one who's going to be tagged with it. So um, 
really no change at all in the outlook for the Fed, despite a high, uh, a high headline number. The revisions, of course, also were in the way of higher numbers. So that tells you that there's still real momentum in, in, in the job market. Michelle, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, Steve, so much of what you say is what I would echo. We were looking at that same statistic, the you know the the adjusted uh, household number that aligns it more with the establishment uh, survey that that always gathers the headlines. And actually, that that household measure adjusted was up even more right. um, in this month than than what the payroll number showed. So, but but you know there were other areas. The hours work numbers were a little bit weaker. I think the earnings numbers, of course, got getting a lot of focus. I mean, if the labor market. Is is strong, but you're not seeing the wage pressures coming uh, through from that, then that gives the Fed more uh, more room to take this pause. So, you know, I, I think we, that's, you know, where we'll come out. There's enough in this report that doesn't force the Fed to, to have to move this month. They can, you know, and, and we even think that the CPI numbers are going to be somewhat um, troublesome for the markets. We think this will be probably the last high print, but we've got a relatively high core rate expectation. Even with that, though, we think the Fed ends up skipping this month, but setting the table for actions in, in July. Michelle, um, I know people come to you and, and, and probably to me, too, and say, I need an answer now. But my mm -hmm. answer is I really can't tell you now, because the reason is when we have had these bumps up in unemployed people, folks, if you have that chart of the difference in the unemployed month to month in the back there, what you'll see is a, it looks like a sawtooth pattern. We get an increase of the unemployed. And then it seems to go away. So maybe this last one, which is bigger than the prior ones of the month, you can see there, maybe this is the beginning of something. But certainly that pattern is not a recessionary pattern, uh, Kelly, when we, 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 we have an increase in unemployed and then they come back and they go away. Then they go down and up and out. We can't make a call. Maybe in a month or two I can make a call. That may be late for you to make a call and this is a recession, but I can't do it from the data. Michelle? Well, that's why we look at the house. I'm sorry. The employment survey or the establishment survey, as opposed to the household numbers, right. because they are so volatile month to month. I think, too, when you step back, there isn't a lot to corroborate the weakness in the in the household numbers in the sense that we haven't seen claims jump up. There hasn't been you know other evidence that you know you would have expected to support that weakness in the in the household survey. So I think all of this together has to have you leaning to the fact that the labor market still has a lot of strength. And notwithstanding that jump in the employment rate. Michelle, one thing that we can give people a beat on, I don't know if you've had the same experience as I have, but using the high-frequency data, it's not always right, but it's been giving a good read of upside and downside surprises. And I'm talking about UKG, and I'm talking about home base. Even AVP has done a good job of telling us not the level of employment. So that is something that if you listen to our reporting during the week, I know Michelle picks this up in her previews that, we're giving people an idea of, is it tending towards the upside or towards the downside? And what we've not been able to do because some of this data is so new is to calibrate it to an actual level of employment growth. But we had the same you know, reaction in terms of those ADP numbers, for example, the fact that, you know, the the way that the measurement has has changed has seemed to have given it. It's it's just given us a really good lead on certainly the direction of, of the payroll numbers. It's been a lot more reliable. So as as this is kind of gets back to what we were saying, looking through, it is obviously a lot of noise in this number. But if you step back in more holistically looking at all of the labor market indicators, they do tend to still point toward more strength, not much sign of a sharp moderation. 
Do you then think, Michelle, this is kind of a debate we've been having all day long, but it's really the whole debate in the markets. Do you think that the Fed is done or do you think that even if they skip that there could be a lot more hikes or you know what I mean? So our forecast, and Steve, you'll remember, we, we, we had this debate going into the last meeting um, where we, you know, our forecast has really been that the Fed can be done because we do think the economy is going to weaken as we move toward the, you know, later in the year. Um, and, and the Fed has done a lot. They've raised rates 10 times, 500 basis points. They've, they've maybe earned the right to, to pause and assess the fallout of the actions that have been taken to date. That said, um, it certainly seems like if they skip June, they will set the table, as I indicated, um, for a potential July rate hike with the, the dot plot. We think the dot plot will signal, we think the Fed will change uh, those numbers to signal that this is not, just because they have stopped in June, they still have an expectation that probably more is going to be needed. What's happening, Kelly, I think is, Reasons for pausing have melted away. And I'll tell you what, what's in there. For example, the debt ceiling, that ended up okay, all right? Um, job growth, still pretty strong. Um, and the next thing we're gonna be watching, that's why I stay till 4.15 every Friday. There is no early release for the economics department the these H4 days. Or eight, the H8. Eight, 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 Come eight. on, get it right there, Kelly. What are those deposits H4 and what are those the money supply? H8 is, is Friday. And like I said yesterday, there's some guy who puts this together or some woman who puts this together in some corner of some Federal Reserve office that's smiling that the idea that finally after all these decades we're covering this live. You know, you said but, the reasons are melting away, but I'm yeah. still worried about the iceberg. Okay, let's talk about that in a second. But I just want to give you this one other thing, yeah. which is we have seen a decline in deposits at the banks but we've not seen a decline in lending. And so, I mean, it's not, it's not robust by any respects. We've seen a lot tighter lending. Lending know. standards, but yeah. the volume of lending, it's not done what people feared, which is that when you get into a situation of credit contraction or credit, credit, credit tightening, that you have a decrease in the quantity of loans that's greater than the increase in the price of the loans. It becomes disconnected or nonlinear is the fancy economic term. We've not seen that yet. And that is something that was um, that has stayed the hands or been a, a point made by many doves of why the Fed should pause. So I'm looking today not only at deposit levels, but also lending levels to see if somehow the banks are keeping those lending levels up. It's a great point. And maybe I'll, I'll ask you this question, Michelle, which is, do you think we can avoid a recession after everything that's happened and everything the data are telling us? You know, that's not our, you know, our expectation. We do have the economy uh, slipping into recession. Uh, and, and I am worried about the fact, uh, you, you're right, at, at this moment, Steve, that the lending numbers have, have shown more resilience. But, I, you know, in our view, the, the tighter credit conditions, again, as a result of, of those deposits um, leaving, will end up making it very difficult for firms to continue to expand and grow and to continue to keep hiring at the pace that we're seeing. We're already seeing bankruptcies starting to, you know, to move up. I think, you know, that's a sign that that credit availability is, you know, for a lot of smaller businesses is just not as prevalent. And 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 that's what we think is going to come to really bite as we move. Um, Michelle, are you worried about are you worried about the credit card delinquencies? 
Well, that again, all of these indications yeah. that for, that you know you've had consumers who were flush with savings um, after COVID have become a bit more now dependent on credit. We've seen some of the of the credit deterioration. Um, you know, again, as as people have gotten themselves perhaps a bit overextended, and now I think credit standards in general, as a result of these developments, are going to be tightening. Kelly, and all of that suggests to me that it's going to be more difficult uh, sledding for the economy going forward. Kelly, what's the iceberg? Everything, right? The, the, the iceberg is like, maybe it, take, it took us longer than we expected to get there. But when you see it started in financial markets with some of the deeply inverted yield curves and all of that, the, then the declines in M2, all of the long leading stuff. And now it's moved into, you know, the drop in leading economic indicators. It started to go in jobless claims, then we pulled back. So I totally grant everybody's point that, you know, this is not played out as quickly as it might have, but I don't think that means it's, it's not coming. You mean the cumulative, accumulated darkness in the rear window is right. what you're talking about? Right. it's chasing if us you, down. If you turn around, it's a dark cloud yeah. behind you. Okay. <laughs> but again, look at the markets, right? Everybody who would have said, well, thanks, Evans. What, what would I, you know, get out of stocks and like, thanks a lot. You would have cost me a lot I, I of money. I think this AI thing is something that is interesting on a lot of levels for the stock market. And I think people are just starting to think about what it means long-term for companies and productivity. Oh, sure. And we can have that chat. Uh, but it's something that would work against the accumulated darkness behind us. You know, maybe. maybe. It shine a little light, Miss <laughs> Evans. All right, fine. <laughs> Thank you both, Steve Leesman, Michelle Gerard. Very much appreciated today. As Steve was just saying, the Nasdaq hitting a fresh 52-week intraday high. high in today's session. My next guest is sticking with the tech trade. She had a front row seat to the first attempt at AI in the 90s and says this is different. She's urging investors to look for companies that use the tech in one very specific way. For more on this, let's bring in Kim Forrest, Chief Investment Officer at Boca Capital Partners. Kim, uh, welcome. So lay it out for us. It's, uh, it's hype, it's hoopla, but it's for real. So, yeah, and timing is everything, but we'll get to that. That is the uh, big question that people really need to answer is when and how do I invest? But let's lay out this problem. So for the past, mm, I don't know, maybe 25 years, AI has been rolling around, being developed in the background, but computers have gotten faster, data has become available, and techniques have become somewhat better, although they're pretty much what they were in the 80s and 90s, believe it or not. But computers are better and data is plentiful, which is what AI needs. Um, anyhow, so why am I so excited about AI? Well, I'm somebody that loves productivity because I like investing and I like my companies to get better and better. And that the way they do that is through um, giving technology into their employees' hands, making them more productive. AI has that promise embedded in it. And everybody playing around with chat GBT can really figure that out, right? Like that's just one example. But here's the thing. It's always going to take longer than we think. Always, like all technology. And hopefully investors won't give up on it before it really starts adding productivity to end uh, businesses. But I also take your point, which is, you know, as much as this is for real, the way that you will get excited about it as an investment thesis is when you see what? It delivering productivity? Yes, exactly. Or at least a relatively smooth, shorter path to productivity. So if somebody comes up with, I don't know, there's lots of examples of it, but companies deploying AI, and their earnings going up because of it, that's productivity, right? That's what we all want. And I think that's closer than a lot of us think. 
and but it's not going to be in like super glamorous ways either. You know, we talk him about the names that I don't want to say that they're going to seem boring to people because they're anything but. And you know, Intel, AMD, Micron, these are not they're not boring. You know, some are outstanding to the upside, some are outstanding to the downside. But you know, they're it, it's not Nvidia. It's not, I don't know, open AI. Obviously, you can't, you know, really invest directly in that right now. Right. Um, why these names, which you have been a longtime fan of? And, and what about Broadcom, for instance? Okay. So, well, Broadcom is the weirdest company ever, right? Because it has this uh, <laughs> old storage software, storage items. And now, now it's like the new AI darling because of one class of um chips that it produces, so that's good. But all of these companies can and will play in the world of AI because we need storage for all the data that we collect. We need data to go through telcos because they're gonna go from the real world to the server to get mixed around, to become AI, to become an answer, and then out into the real world. So there's a lot of data that's gonna be zipping around and all of the companies that we talked about are going to have a, pl- a hand in it, some more glamorous than others. Yeah, although I don't hear you saying you're filling your boots with Broadcom, but maybe like you said, because it is such an odd animal. Let's just one, for one second talk Intel because it's been sure. completely left out of this whole conversation. It started to perk sure. up a little bit with these comments about maybe being a part. Yeah, you, got, you can explain it better than me. I mean, do you think sure. that there's something real there? And for people who are looking for maybe an unloved, low multiple way to now maybe find the next AI horse to bet on. Could Intel possibly be that? Well, Jensen Wang gave a little indication this year or this week whenever it said Intel's fab um, looks kind of interesting to him. Now, what you have to remember is this. A lot of the sexy chip companies like NVIDIA don't actually make the product. They design the product and hand it off to, well, maybe Taiwan Semi. So they don't want to have just one vendor. They want to have many vendors. And Intel wants to get into the fabricating or the fab, as we call it. Um, So it's good that they are finally coming up to speed. And if they can satisfy a picky customer like NVIDIA, they have a shot. They, being Intel, have a shot at getting some of the AI love because it will produce other people's chips. Is that why you own it, or you think that would just be a, you know, a sweetener? It's a sweetener. I think the other reason is, even though we love the high, um, the AI use chips, there is a lot of chips that are going to be used in getting that data here to there. And the other thing is, maybe Intel can come up um, and, and, you know, uh, come up into that AI game themselves. Because I'll tell you this, not everybody loves spending a whole lot of money for a semiconductor that like better performance for cheaper, which is why AMD is in the game as well. All right. Kim Forrest, you've been through it all. Uh, the, you know, no one better to put this in perspective and help us sort it out. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Kim Forrest with Boca Capital Partners. Coming up with all the huge retail movers we've had this week, we've got to close things out with a special three bales and a buy. We'll tell you the names our traders watching and the level she's waiting before buying them if she is. But first, two exclusive CEO interviews. We'll speak with the head of Bristol-Myers in his first interview since announcing his upcoming retirement. And Box, posting an earnings beat but slightly lowering its guidance. We'll ask CEO Aaron Levy about that and the impact of AI. As we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. Dow's up 667 right now. Russell is up nearly 3% today. The 10-year yield, 368. We're back after this. 
Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of Bristol-Myers Squibb are up today as a key industry conference kicks off, the ASCO Annual Cancer Conference, which can be a big mover for the companies presenting. Bristol-Myers working on a treatment for people with blood cancer along with some lymphoma treatments and a lung cancer drug. But it comes as the industry is meanwhile facing a growing cancer drug shortage. It's even prompted the FDA to consider allowing temporary imports from unapproved companies to ease the shortage of some chemotherapy drugs in particular. Joining me now to talk about all of this and the role of AI is major cancer drug, uh, one of the major cancer drug companies presenting at ASCO. Dr. Giovanni Caforio is the CEO of Bristol-Myers Squibb. It's great to have you here, Dr. Caforio. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So let me just start with, if I've correctly summarized, the pipeline uh, that you're working on and what do you think investors should be most excited about? Well, thank you, Kelly. It's a really important conference for us. In fact, it really shows the breadth of our presence in oncology. Uh, we're presenting data on an important medicine called Reblozil, a study, the COMMANDS trial, where we demonstrated that nearly twice as many patients can achieve independence from transfusion. These are patients with a form of cancer called the myodysplastic syndrome. Uh, Reblozil has the opportunity to be a new standard of care. It makes us really confident in the $4 billion plus peak revenue estimate we have for the end of the decade. But what's good is that we're also presenting really exciting data in cell therapy for Brianzi, our best-in-class CD19 CAR-T, in a form of uh, cancer called chronic lymphocytic uh, leukemia. And we're taking a precision approach to lung cancer with repotrectinib, which comes from our turning point acquisition for a specific group of patients with lung cancer that have a mutation. So it's really a broad approach to cancer and it's the same approach we're taking to immunology, cardiovascular medicine. Right now, when I think about Bristol Myers we have the best pipeline we've ever had, and the company is really well positioned for growth. It, that said, I'm going to say something very unfair, which is: Is it possible that cancer is not as exciting an area of biotech as it once was? And now we hear about weight loss drugs, and we hear about Alzheimer's cures, and. Um, can you speak to that and whether you think the next major move for your company would, would be in the cancer space or in something different? Well, cancer remains an area with high unmet medical need. And we are approaching cancer uh, following a, a very broad uh, strategy where we're looking at earlier stages of the disease with our immune oncology agents. And we are going into new modalities like cellular therapies 
targeted therapies and our protein homeostasis platform, which is extremely innovative. At the same time, I do agree it's important for a company like ours to have a very diversified approach. And one of our strengths, in fact, is to have solidified our leadership in cancer, while at the same time, we've continued to work on cardiovascular medicines, another area where we are the leaders, immunology, with the launch of Sotik2, growing importance for us. And so our pipeline actually addresses areas of unmet medical need now across multiple therapeutic areas. Absolutely. And obviously, it's still very important to the president who still has his cancer moonshots uh, in, the, in those prerogatives. So I'm curious as well if you've been following the Amgen, you know, the FTC suing Amgen over this Horizon deal. And the only reason that I ask is because if it were successful, and a lot of people think it won't be, but it could potentially chill M&A. And analysts have said the real impact could be on more established pharma companies like yours if they can't do M&A in order to backfill their pipeline going forward. Um, would it chill your future acquisition plans if this lawsuit is successful? Well, I can't comment on a specific uh, FTC position on one deal. What I can tell you is that for us, business development remains important. And we've demonstrated with the acquisition of myocardia, of turning point therapeutics, that while uh, when we acquire a company, we actually are able to accelerate the development of a new medicine and bring it to patients faster. So there is tremendous value in continuing to think about business development, not only as part of our innovation strategy, but it's clearly a way to bring more medicines to more patients faster. So it's an area we plan on continuing to focus on. An important area that, you know, I think your, yeah, your, your point is well taken. So let me just ask you what's going on with the shortage of cancer drugs. Has it ever been this bad? I think there's 12 drugs in particular uh, that there's a shortage of. Some say it's a national emergency chemotherapy and, and some other things affected? Well, it's a very serious issue. Of course, the concern is that a patient will not have access to a medicine they need at a very important time, which is clearly the case in cancer. So for us, we are extremely focused on ensuring that we have a reliable supply of high quality medicines uh, for patients, of course, in cancer, but across our portfolio. It's particularly important for us because we are launching so many new medicines. Our portfolio is evolving. So our supply chain organization works relentlessly to ensure that that doesn't impact our patients. Absolutely. So finally, and I know this will really be up to the next leadership, but what about artificial intelligence? Do you have any early thoughts and reactions? As to, and I should mention, Michael Yee, and one of the analysts, obviously, who covers your space, thinks it's one of the most transformative things going on in biotech uh, that could have implications, for instance, in a future where drugs could go from machine to patent uh, with mi- or to patient with minimal preclinical or clinical testing. What are your thoughts? Well, it's an area of intense focus for us. We've invested in this space for many years now. And I do agree that the use of artificial intelligence, machine learning can transform actually our industry from discovery where we may be able uh, to discover new molecules faster with more precision. I believe there are tremendous applications to accelerating clinical trials uh, and then commercializing our medicines and obtaining real world data to change uh, uh, the practice of medicine. We are at the forefront of those efforts internally We have uh, actually developed a number of partnerships with tech companies outside of Bristol MySquid because we have one of the best pipelines uh, in the industry. We're accelerating a new generation of innovative medicines 
through development and to patients. And we feel technology will have an important role for us uh, at Bristol MySquib. It's an exciting time, actually. That is for sure. Well, we thank you so much for taking some time to join us today and uh, for all the work that you do on cancer, immunotherapies and all the rest of it. Obviously, it's vital for so many Americans. Thanks so much, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Dr. Giovanni Caforio is the CEO of Bristol Myers Squibb. Still ahead, the debate taking place in boardrooms, classrooms, even living rooms. Will AI take your job or help with it? We'll look at one school's training approach to helping students prepare for that future. The exchange is back after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Trying to make a run at a 700-point day here on the Dow, but still a little bit shy of that, up 678 or 2%. The S&P is up a percent and a half, and the Nasdaq is actually lagging today, up 1.1%. But take a look at the Nasdaq Composite and the Nasdaq 100, or the triple Qs, since January 1st, both well outperforming the broader market. And you can see this disparity here that really began uh, back when SVB collapsed in mid-March over the past three months. Since that March low, which coincided with that collapse, the Nasdaq 100 is up 20 while the composite is up 18%. Still, investors in either one are probably happy for that. Take those gains, I mean. And while the comp is sitting at a new 52-week high for the first time in over a year, it's been seven new highs for the NASDAQ 100 in just the past month. And don't look now, but the regional bank ETF, the KRE, is on pace for its third straight week of gains for the first time since January. It's up nearly 15% in the last three weeks. And this is one reason with a 5% gain today that the Russell is up almost 3%. KRE is also on pace to close above its 50-day moving average for the first time since March 1st. 40.97 is the level to watch there, and we're about a buck above that right now, so it looks like a pretty comfortable margin. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Kelly, thank you very much. At least 50 people have died in a train collision in India earlier today. Local media reports say a passenger train in the eastern part of the country derailed and fell into the opposite track, hitting an oncoming freight train, nearly 300 people injured. CIA Director Bill Burns made his first state trip to China last month since becoming the head of the intelligence agency. A U.S. official told NBC News Burns met with his Chinese counterparts to emphasize the importance of maintaining open lines of communication and intelligence channels. His visit came after Beijing broke off most regular calls between senior government officials following the downing of a Chinese spy balloon off the South Carolina coast that back in early February. And the FBI will let the House Oversight Committee review an internal law enforcement document next week after the committee threatened to hold Director Christopher Wray in contempt for not turning it over. The panel is investigating the Biden family's business dealings. The agency will bring the document to Capitol Hill on Monday and offer a briefing under secure circumstances. Kelly, back to you. See you in a half hour. Sounds good, Tyler. Thanks. Coming up, a special retail edition of three bales and just one buy. This stock, where our trader expects an upside breakout despite pressure from the housing market. You might be surprised. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a pretty wild week for retail, with several stocks tanking while a few are taking off, from Dollar General and Advance Auto struggles to better results at Nordstrom and Lululemon. 
what the heck should you do with the space right now? My next guest brings us three bales and one buy today. Joining us now is Danielle Shea, Vice President of Options at Simpler Trading. Danielle, welcome. You've been in a, a more, to you. you too. The, you've been pretty constructive on the markets too. So I'm very curious how you're going to kind of play some of these names. So without further ado, let's start with Macy's. Uh, they slashed their full year outlook on Thursday, saying sales were significantly weaker in Q1, but the stock was kind of resilient. It's actually up five percent this week. Is this a no? This is a bail for you. So, Kelly, when you look at Macy's, I mean, this has been in a downtrend since 2015 and even more recently over the course of the past several quarters, this has been trading to the downside. And when you look at the report uh, that came from the executives and they noted their consumers are continuing to be under pressure. I mean, for me, when I see a burst higher in a stock like this, I want to continue along with the trend. So when I have a day where the market's up and it's trading directly into critical resistance zones, that's a shorting opportunity for me so that I can continue to trade this ticker down to more recent lows. Mm, all right. Not Macy's. Let's see if it's Dillard's. They have some more positive news flow. They beat on earnings and revenue for Q1. They authorize a sherry purchase program, a cash dividend. Shares are up about 3% over the past month. What do you think here? So, Kelly, when you look at this stock, I mean, it doesn't look anywhere as bad as Macy's does. I mean, on the longer term trend, we've had a pretty positive move. Earnings, they don't look bad. I like the fundamentals in the company. What I'm concerned about here is the way that it topped out in February and the way that the trend has reversed. So what we're seeing in a lot of the retailers that have been strong, especially retailers that were strong last year, is we're just seeing money flow out of those names. And we're seeing these longer term trends start to break down, especially as traders get more involved in semiconductors and tech. And so when you're looking at Dillard's, I don't have a problem with the company, but I will note that there's critical resistance zones around 315, 320 that you should watch out for because at this point, this is a key area where this stock could hit resistance and fall back downwards into about 260, 250. Wow. Okay. It's a 307 now. So sort of like be careful of the head fake, uh, maybe in other words. That brings us to one of the biggest retail wrecks this week, which was Dollar General. Their Q1 missed on the top and bottom line. They slashed full-year guidance. But Loop Capital's Anthony Jacumba yesterday said he thinks the brand's headwinds are cyclical, not secular. You agree? Well, you know, that is true. But at the same time, you have to look at these key areas of support that are breaking. And when you have a company like this that was incredibly strong throughout the pandemic, I mean, we saw these massive pandemic gains, right? And so at this point those gains have dissipated. We have come back. We've, we've lost all of those pandemic gains. And at this point, with those breaks and support zones and with the way that the consumer is changing, the problem is, is that there's not really very many areas left to hold on when you're looking at this chart. And so when a move like this occurs on earnings, it's one of my favorite trades. You know, you look and you pay attention to the news. You want to see companies that are having greater than expected news. And first thing on the open, if you can get in and trade that momentum to the short side, they can make for some really great trades. So this is one of those for me. I'm targeting pandemic lows on it, and I think it's going to continue lower. Wow. All right. Sorry, Dollar General. Let's see about the name to buy. And this one kind of surprised me. It's Lowe's. That was the mystery chart we showed before the break. Shares are up a couple percent today, 1% over the past week, even after warning of slower sales ahead. Why does this one jump out to you, Danielle? So I like this one because it's backed by solid fundamentals. They've continued to do well on earnings. They've also recently increased their dividend. And my favorite part about it is that it's consolidating on both the daily and the weekly charts. And those chart patterns are still holding up in a bullish manner. And so what I like to do is I like to identify 
charts like this that yes they may have some headwinds currently right now but ultimately they're strong companies and they're going to continue trading higher and so when you look at lows um, i am continuing to buy shares during this time of consolidation for an ultimate breakout because additionally i'll point out that you know even though the housing sector has been soft people are staying in their homes and so that is going to require trips to lowe's trips to home depot yeah um and so I would like to trade this up into about 230 and ultimately up to previous highs. I always thought the same thing. You know, we bought our house five, six years ago and it was years of doing stuff before, you know, you finally, every time you think you're on top of it, something breaks and whatever. So I, I totally take your point. Can I just quickly pick your brain about the broader markets? Like after a markets day like today in particular, what does that tell you about, I don't know, pick one, the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000? You know, Kelly, I love the market right now. I think it's making for great trading. Uh, primarily for me, what I was looking out for was the major mega cap stocks breaking through overhead resistance that was based in August. And so once we saw Microsoft break through those August highs, um, you know, we're really seeing a lot of FOMO induced buying. That's the fear of missing out. You know, people were looking at those resistance levels and thinking that the market was going to fail. And when it didn't, People are coming in and buying and pushing stocks higher. So for me, I'm focusing on mega cap tech right here and semiconductors as well. The AI trade has been absolutely phenomenal. But I think the market is making for some great trading. And I think that people will continue to be surprised that we're going to continue seeing higher prices. Yeah, you sound like a surfer, like the, talking about the waves, you know. Um, but I take your point. It ain't over yet. Danielle, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Danielle Shea with Simpler Trading. Coming up, we've heard about the fears of AI replacing jobs in the workforce, you know, destroying humanity. But what about the new jobs to create the new AI tech itself? Kate Rogers has more on a new university and NVIDIA initiative next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Will AI replace your job? It's a fear many have during this AI craze. But what about all those jobs that might be created to build the AI itself? For that, we turn to Kate Rogers. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. So good to see you. Well, you just said it. Will AI take or enhance your job? The University of Florida is hoping for the latter for its students. The school has a public-private partnership with NVIDIA as its co-founder, Chris Malinkowski, is an alum and has an AI-centric data center featuring a supercomputer as the school looks to be a national leader in AI. It's training its students regardless of major in artificial intelligence. They've got 230 courses in AI across 16 colleges and had 7,500 students enrolled in them last spring. When you think about uh, in a work environment, around the table at some, at some business, people are trying to solve a problem. Not everybody around the table is going to be a computer programmer anyway. You want the marketing person around the table to understand AI. You want the, the communications team to understand artificial intelligence. You want all of the members of that, of that group trying to solve a problem to understand the fundamentals of how AI is being applied to that, to that particular problem. Dr. Reed said the school is also letting recruiters know it's going to have a student workforce that looks very different in the next three to five years because of this training and hopes its students will have an edge in the new tech economy due to this program. So it's not just the data scientists and people who are majoring in software or STEM. It's teaching everyone how to do this, which is really unique. That is wild. Did you say zoology was literally <laughs> one of the areas? He mentioned from zoology to the arts. That's the, the broad scope of what we're doing here. And even like music majors, for example, he said we're teaching them very basic programming 
programming skills so that they have an understanding of AI. So it's not just building the AI tech pipeline, but he's saying, you know, when you're in a role in corporate America, everyone sitting around the table should have somewhat of an understanding of how this works. And that will give you, you know, the cutting edge and hopefully not take your job away, but make you, you know, a leader in the room. It's super cool. And kind of a side note of the benefit of those little additive tools can have. In college, I was a print major, but I I did I just did a teeny bit with video. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, at the Wall Street Journal, and they say, does anyone around here know how to do video? I'm like, yeah, I know a little a bit. A little you bit. Know? And well, here we are. are. Yeah. Right? So the, just the, this exposure, this familiar, just giving people just enough confidence with that language could be a huge career boost. Totally. And another... Uh, job that he brought up that I think is important too, paralegals. He's like, everyone talks about paralegals going away because of AI, but what if you're a paralegal that understands how to use AI to be even better at your job? Wouldn't you be the one to hang on to it versus someone who has no understanding and hasn't trained in it? No, and it reminds you almost of of medicine where the kind of the the physician's assistants have become as crucial as the doctors themselves and it could actually kind of upend the balance of power. with workforce shortages, right? Having this additional skill set really sets you apart too. It's true. We can't say enough about it. We Kate, can't. thank you. <laughs> Kate thank Rogers, you. appreciate it. Great to have you here as well, Great by the way. You. Coming up, is it ethical to use AI at work? I guess it should be, based on what we were just talking about. My next guest has some thoughts on that. Box CEO Aaron Levy joins us after the break. Box shares are higher in today's session on the back of their earnings. We're back in a moment with the Dow up 677. Welcome back to The Exchange. My next guest doesn't quite share the fear-mongering about AI, saying the technology will help create more jobs than it will cost in the long term. Will Box's own investments in AI boost productivity and its stock, which is down about 7% this year? Joining me now to discuss, Box CEO Aaron Levy. Aaron, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, I mean, would you, are you worried about it destroying humanity? You know, tell, where, <laughs> where are the concerns? Where are the opportunities here? I, I, first of all, I think it is, it's incredibly important to take AI safety uh, very, very seriously. Um, we do want to make sure that as we have autonomous agents that can make decisions on humans' behalf, uh, that we are very, very intentional about how those uh, AI systems are trained, um, how they are aligned to human safety and our, uh, our goals. But I don't sort of share the, the same, you know, kind of doom and gloom um, that I think, uh, you know, some folks are, are talking about. I think, um, you know, this is a technology that is, uh, has a lot of optimistic characteristics where uh, we all uh, across society have an instant uh, ability to be either more productive or have uh, answers to, to questions instantly. You have a personal tutor for any use case that you want. Um, and in a work environment, it can allow us to really accelerate the progress of, of what we're doing. You can um, code software faster. You can um, support customers better. You can ensure that you've tailored the right messaging when you're in a sales deal. Um, it can help us innovate on products. So uh, we're really, really excited about the impact that this is going to have in the workplace. Yeah. I mean, it still gets stuff wrong. You know, like 2% of the time it gets four-digit math wrong because it's just based on the internet as opposed to actual compute. But I, I take your point. Once we move into the enterprise and, you know, finally hone it. Let me read what one of the analysts said about the way that you guys are using it, which I thought was interesting. They said that your strategy is to become a neutral platform supporting an ecosystem of third-party AI software applications like ChatGPT that customers can apply to their own content, which resides in Box's content cloud. Does that kind of sum it up, kind of, it's, I've heard people say it about, you know, maybe it's Amazon's approach too, but kind of being the Switzerland in, in the race. Yeah, so the, the virtue that we have as an open platform is that we can bring the leading AI models to, uh, to enterprises uh, and specifically help them, uh, help our customers better understand the data and the content that they have 
80% of data created is unstructured, and a significant portion of that are files. It's your contracts, it's your marketing assets, it's your financial documents, and AI, for the first time ever, lets us understand what's inside of that information. And to your point about uh, sometimes AI getting it wrong, this is specifically what we are focused on. When you use AI models to help you understand existing data, we've been able to dramatically reduce any of the, the chance of hallucination or, uh, or yes. these situations where it's getting answers wrong. So it's fundamentally about your data uh, securely managed and asking your information questions. No, it's it, listen. Even here internally, it would be it would be fantastic to have a tool that useful. It'd be it would be incredible for productivity. Um, you know, so financially, when should we expect it to impact results? We were talking with uh, Kim Forrest earlier this hour, who said she'll bet on any company that can show like genuine productivity from AI. And so, yeah. I guess that's if if your platform itself is agnostic, but I imagine at some point you're using AI to you know. Um, enhance productivity, kind of what's the timeline and, and the financial benefit you foresee? Yeah, so we just announced Box AI just in May. So this is, um, we right in December went heads down. We started working on Box AI in partnership with OpenAI. Um, so our first initial announcement and demonstration of the technology is really just in the past 30 days. We're now scaling this up with design partners, which are our customers that uh, really want to dive in first with this technology. From there, we'll, we'll expand it out to more customers broadly. From a pricing and packaging standpoint, it's still fairly early. We're trying to figure out how much we want to incorporate directly into the base product, how much we want to charge for. So I'd say, you know, to be, uh, to be announced on that front. But uh, right now, customers are incredibly excited. Almost every conversation I'm having with an enterprise starts with uh, how can we leverage AI to better understand our data and our content, um, and we're in a really good position to help customers solve those problems. Quick final question. Maybe you can help yeah. kind of clarify to me what's going on with enterprise spending lately, because we get, you know, MongoDB is doing great, but Sentinel-1, you know, had terrible results. And, so, you know, people are citing the macro as part of a reason for that. You know, customers are slowing things down. Okay, well, but Palo Alto is still. A so what are you sensing on the enterprise side in terms of how demand is holding up, especially in the next couple of quarters? Yeah, I think, you know, what we've seen and what we've talked to other you know peers about in the industry about is I think starting around Q3 of last year, you started to see some headwinds due to the macro environment. Um, IT budgets have been under pressure. Uh, obviously, you know, for, for all of us still growing, uh, there are still investments in kind of critical application areas, uh, but there is some headwinds uh, from the, the macroeconomic environment. And you have some companies not growing as quickly, which then results in maybe less IT spend within their business as well. So this is something that's industry-wide. Um, and the, the key is to obviously mitigate these, these challenges by having mission-critical technology uh, that companies really, really need to be able to use to drive productivity, improve their security, run their operations better. And we think AI will be another enabler uh, to really getting the most out of your, your workforce and your yeah. talent and, uh, and your enterprise software. And shaking those dollars out of the tree. By the way, I didn't realize you're kind of a, a, a Japan play in some ways, wouldn't you say? Uh, well, you know, we're not not intentionally specifically a Japan play, but we have had a lot of success in uh, uh, in Japan. And, uh, uh, you know, just as uh, we work with global enterprises everywhere, uh, you know, Japanese businesses have been super focused and keen to drive productivity um, and collaboration within their organizations. Yeah. Strong dollar. I know it can be a headwind, but uh, Japan's all the rage these days. So it's a place to be. Aaron, thanks for your time today. It's great to see you again. Thanks. Good to see you. Aaron Levy with Box. That does it for us here on The Exchange. But coming up next in Power Lunch, Michael Yee, the biotech analyst, on how transformative AI could be in biotech. We just heard from the BMY CEO. We'll bring you more after this. Tyler is getting ready. Dow's up almost six, uh, 700, Ty. I'll see you on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.